You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Have you ever heard someone say, rather dismissively, Ah, that's ancient history. If you're like me, your response would be, Tell me more. Hi, this is David Miano. If you're an ancient history lover, I invite you to come and take a gander at the World of Antiquity YouTube channel, which delves into exciting ancient stories and materials from Pacific to Atlantic. In our Antiquities Travel Guide, for example, we provide you with insider tips and historical context for ancient sites around the globe, which may serve you for your journeys, or simply broaden your horizons during leisurely evenings at home when you wish to learn what's out there. You may also appreciate our Myths of Ancient History series, which tackles pseudoscientific claims about the ancient past that you see so often on the internet today. We take them one by one and show you how these ideas are not supported by the evidence. You can find the channel at youtube.com slash worldofantiquity. That's youtube.com slash worldofantiquity. Come on over and join us. Let me tell you about something that will change your life. This is madness, then you would be forever insane. You cannot remember the last time you felt this free, this close to every living thing in the world. You can feel the humming of the bees in their hives, the dragonfly as she skims across the surface of the lake, and the moth that dives ever closer to the fire. You can almost taste the air. It tastes of grapes, almost fermented, and of honey. The god has arrived. You could hear his call from a mile away. The sounds of his entourage, the music, sweet notes calling out to you, enticing you, calling you away from your loom, away from your endless chores, and making you want to dance, to sing, to unbind your hair, to dance in the cool night air amongst the wild forest laurels and trees. You don't remember how you found your way there, how you navigate the dark mountain paths, 
but you know you're not alone. Your neighbor is with you, and so is her daughter. All the women of your village stream out of their homes. You're not sure who starts singing first, but soon you feel your voice joining the chorus. The melody flows through you, even if you don't know the words. Your body remembers them. You don't know where the wine came from, but you drink it down, gulp after greedy gulp, and it doesn't go to your head. It goes to your heart. You are seeing everything clearly for the first time in your life. This is freedom. The further away from town you get, the more you forget. The face of your husband, the feel of his arms. Instead, you remember something deep and primal, something that feels like coming home. You dance through the night and then sleep the next day. Your hair is filled with leaves and wild as the snakes that slither through the creek. You have never felt so much joy. You aren't sure who suggests the idea of the hunt, but you are thrilled. Your hands ache with a strength they have never known. You feel as if you could tear that deer apart with just their strength. You stalk your prey, you and your sisters, and when you find him, when you get your hands upon the creature, there is no power in the world that can stop you. You know the god is in your hands, your teeth, your arms, as you rend flesh from bone, as you tear and bite and devour. And when it is over, when nothing is left but the head of the deer that you cradle in your arms like a newborn, that is when you feel his power leave you. You cradle the head of the deer, the spoils, your victory you don't look down at it. Something feels strange. Something is wrong. Whatever you're holding, whatever it is, you don't want to know. You cannot bear to break the illusion. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Welcome to season five. Season five. This is the first episode of our brand new series, and we are so excited to be telling you these stories. We missed you guys over our, I I fucking can't say this word, over our hiatus. This is an episode about Dionysus, and one of us has already been hitting the sauce. This time it's not me. I disgraced myself during Yule, so I'm going to let Jenny take it away this time. (laughs) Hold up a second. (laughs) I saw the wine cup in your hand. You are totally not doing this one sober. (laughs) We're not a drunk history podcast, but we're definitely trending that way. So we are really happy to be back from our hiatus. So Jen, what are you drinking? I am drinking a half a glass of wine. I will be alternating this with water because I'm not a Scythian. Because my New Year's resolution after listening to Yule is not to get that drunk again and record a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. I think it went great. (laughs) My favorite part in that episode was where I just said, there's no J next to this. You have to read it. (laughs) You could have sounded a lot drunker than you did. I will say that. But so could I. So it's fine. Anyway, this isn't all going into the season because we've already taken up way too much time talking about our drinking. (laughs) We don't have a drinking problem or do we? We don't have a drinking problem. We have a drinking solution. Exactly. So anyway, what we were trying to say is we never really take a break. The writing and recording never stops. Never stops, you guys. Never stops. No, it doesn't. Please, if you love us, (laughs) give to our Patreon. If you don't want us to just be in this hamster wheel of algorithms forever, give to our Patreon. I forgot to say what I was drinking. I'm drinking... Austin East Ciders, the Mark Antony sized can of booze. And this one is blood orange flavored. And I have another one in the fridge. Oh boy, guys. She's going to be lit. Well, it's because it's a Dionysus episode. I mean, if I didn't, Dionysus would probably rip me limb from limb. Don't give them spoilers. So anyway, I'm trying to get through this paragraph that Jen gave me to read. Oh yeah, I wrote this episode, guys. (laughs) We're back with 
with a brand new season and we're going to be talking about the god Dionysus and the role he played in revolutions. This episode is a result of the giant rabbit hole that Jen went down while researching the Spartacus War. So while Jen was reading the excellent The Spartacus War by Barry Strauss, she came across a mention about Spartacus's lover. Her name is shockingly lost to history, which is very upsetting because dudes and toxic masculinity. Shocking. I know, not cool. But Barry Strauss in The Spartacus War calls her the Thracian lady and we were just dying to know more about the Thracian lady, right, Jen? Oh my goodness. I am incredibly fascinated by her. I think I'm going to write a whole novel about her. Yeah. So the Thracian lady was the spin doctor. She was basically Spartacus's Spartacus's. She was spit. <laughs> Fucking A. Oh my God, Jenny, we're never going to get through this episode. <laughs> The Thracian lady was the spin doctor of Spartacus, okay, and the person who curated his reputation as a visionary leader touched by the gods. She was the one who crafted the narrative that made Spartacus a legend. And what struck, what stuck out, was struck out. <laughs> what are we doing? Who wrote this episode? Who fucking wrote this? We're all down to clown right now. <laughs> so what stuck out for me was that she was a priestess of Dionysus and I didn't know a lot about the worship of Dionysus he wasn't one of my favorite gods to me he kind of just seemed like the god of theater kids drunken parties ecstasy nature and orgies which you know it, it wasn't exactly my thing when I was learning about him in fifth grade well that was when you were 10 well yeah of course but so much of what I knew about mythology was based on stuff I'd learned when I was much younger when you were telling me oh Mark Antony was the new Dionysus I was like (laughs) of course he was (laughs) the god of wine and orgies that makes sense that's why I was saying we have to drink for this episode because Mark Antony insists and Dionysus insists here's the thing Jenny I was kind of shocked when I found out that so many people who rebelled against Rome actually took Dionysus as their patron god including the leaders of the slave revolts in Sicily and Mithridates yeah and you also see Mark Antony being called the new Dionysus And we talked about this in Mark Antony and Cleopatra episodes, why that was subversive, because he was being called that by Asian provinces that he was extorting to fund his wars in Parthia. And they were kind of calling him this sort of agent of chaos who rocks up into your community and demands that you worship him or he's going to fuck up all of your shit, which is basically what, from their perspective, he was doing. But my suspicion, having gotten to know Mark Antony quite well over the course of those episodes, is that he was totally thinking that they were just calling him Cuervo Man and (laughs) a guy who throws a really awesome party. And he completely embraced this title. And I imagine that the people who gave it to him were kind of laughing about it behind his back. Well, the thing that cracks me up about it is in Ovid's Metamorphosis, we see the story of Midas, you know, the guy with the golden touch. Midas was given that golden touch by Dionysus. And the reason it's so funny is because Midas did a solid for Dionysus. He protected one of his satyr followers and Dionysus rocked up and he was like, all right, what do you want? I'll give you a favor. I'm a god. And Midas was like, I want everything I touch to be turned to gold. And Dionysus was like, well, that that is a terrible... Okay, all right, let's do it. He then peaced out, didn't give like any warnings about why this was an awful idea. Midas just had to be like, I meant metaphorically. I did not mean literally. Can you not just be so literal with everything Dionysus? The thing about Dionysus is he had a wicked sense of humor, a bit like Mark Antony. I really do think that comparison is so apt. And he was just as likely to curse you with the thing you wanted as to withhold the thing you wanted. Yeah, so if you're going to do Dionysus a favor, excuse me. (laughs) Please keep that in. (laughs) So if you're going to do Dionysus a favor, (laughs) (laughs) 
the spirit of Mark Antony visiting the podcast. Usually it's Jen who does the channeling, but. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mark Antony. (laughs) We meet again. Told you I couldn't get a handle on Mark Antony. It's because he's in you. <laughs> Mark Antony is protection. Oh. Oh, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm going to go back. I'm going to just get us back on track. So priests and priestesses of Dionysus were said to be able to go into an ecstatic trance and communicate with the God and even tell the future. And Jenny, this is just not how I remember Dionysus from my middle grade mythology. So I started to wonder... Who was this god, and why did the Roman upper classes fear him? Dionysus was a scary figure to the Roman upper classes because he was all about disrupting the status quo. The priests and priestesses of Dionysus were dangerous people to the ancient Romans, especially when they were from the lower classes. According to Barry Strauss in the Spartacus War, quote, seers played a proven role as troublemakers among slaves. They had incited one revolt in Sicily in 135 BC and led another in 104 BC. The Roman agricultural expert Columella, writing around... 60 AD, might have had such events in mind when he warned managers to keep prophets and witches off the estate. So why was Dionysus, the god of good theater, great wine, and even better times, so dangerous? To find out why Dionysus was so important to those disempowered by Roman society, slaves, women, the poor, leaders of rebellions and revolts, and so on, you have to look into the mythology and the stories that spread about him throughout the classical world, because here's the thing about Dionysus. He existed in some form all across the ancient world, from Greece through to India and Egypt. Dionysus got around, much like Mark Antony. And when he got around, he didn't just spread a message of orgies, good wine, and good theater. I mean, he spread other things too. Possibly herpes, we don't know. (laughs) The clap. Are you going to let me, like, read what's written here? Guys, when Jenny drinks too much, this is what happens. (laughs) I have only had a couple of sips of my Mark Antony-sized can, Jen. This is me sober. So anyway, I'm getting back to Dionysus. All right, yes, we're talking about Dionysus spreading them all across the ancient world. (laughs) We're talking about what he spread. Can we just talk about what Dionysus spread, Jen? I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Dionysus spread a message of fervor, madness, subversion of societal norms, cross-dressing, sexual agency for women and men, freedom, dissent, and revolution. And STDs. So forget what you thought you knew about Dionysus and his cozy wine-drinking image. This is the Dionysus of Thrace, the Dionysus of Mithridates, of Spartacus, of revolutionaries across the classical world. This is the story of how one wandering god inspired people to rise up against injustice. So, let's start at the very beginning. This is one of the most famous stories of Dionysus's birth. It's not the only story because there are a lot of myths and we usually just pick one and we go with it. Otherwise, your brains will break and my brain will break and then we'll be in an alternate timeline. It'll be awful. So now we're going to talk about Dionysus's origins. (laughs) Dionysus's mother was a princess of Thebes named Semele. Semele? Semule. Semele. Smelly. No! Semele. Dionysus' mother. Incidentally, her name means moon. Remember that for the next episode. Is that going to come up in the next episode? It is. 
quiz. All right, it's going to be on the quiz, you guys. We're going to put a quiz in the show notes of the second episode. <laughs> Jen, you have to write a quiz in addition to writing a whole episode and an intro and the show notes and all the social. And you have to grade everybody's answers. Dear Dionysus, give me that sweet, sweet wine. We're just trying to get through this episode here. So Princess Semele. Semele. Princess Smelly. I'm sorry. Semele. Princess Semele was quite the looker. So of course she caught Zeus's ever wandering eye. I mean, barf. Because Zeus couldn't see a pretty girl he didn't want to sleep with, willingly or not, because he was a serial rapist and he was terrible. Did their relationship start out consensually, Jen? It's tough to know. Like, generally... It probably depends on the version you're reading, right? Well, yeah. And usually it depends on what the translator tells you and doesn't tell you. But the thing about this myth is I haven't found any version where... Zeus assumed a shape and forced himself on her. So you have to maybe assume it was consensual and he had actual feelings for this mortal, which is incredibly rare in Zeus's relations with women. So anyway, this relationship between Zeus and Semele is actually one of the rare instances where we think it was probably consensual or at least it became consensual. So Semele became Zeus's mistress and she was totally into it. She was smitten. He was the king of the gods after all, which which is definitely, you know, a plus for some women. And he was totally not shy about telling her all about how he was the king of the gods. He's like, hey, babe, you know what? You know what? Guess what? I'm the king of the gods. Absolutely. He just could not keep that quiet. <laughs> right. You know something about me that you don't know? Let's just share. Mine is that I'm king of the gods. And also I have six toes. Hers is that she's a natural redhead. Oh, wait, he does know that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Assembly is like, surprise, I'm pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise! Anyway, well, we haven't gotten there yet. At this moment, Semele, she's got this new boyfriend. He's the king of the gods. And she's like, you know, telling her sisters and her parents and her friends, everybody who was listening, who she was banging. Semele could not shut up about this. (laughs) They go into a temple of Zeus and there's a big old statue and she points at it. She leans over. She's like, that guy right over there, we're totally smashing it. I see that guy over there. I'm totally his mistress. And, you know... I'm good with it. You should be good with it, too. But here's the thing. Zeus was also smitten. He fell in as much love as Zeus ever fell for anyone. And that's kind of weird because, like we said, serial rapist, kind of a douche nozzle. He was saying all the right things this time to Semele. Semele. <laughs> if I say it too fast, it comes out smelly. I apologize. <laughs> Guys, this is one can down. <laughs> I have literally just had three sips of my Mark Antony-sized can of booze. Anyway, at this point in the story, Zeus is totally into it with Semele, making all the promises saying all the right things all she had to do was ask and when Semele told Zeus that she was pregnant he was over the fucking moon because this isn't Zeus's first time around this particular carousel he was the father to many demigods and he was super excited to add this one to his ever-growing brood but not everyone was so excited because spoiler Zeus had a wife who was also his sister Ptolemies. Let's not look too closely at that or our brains will hurt and the Ptolemies will come up to haunt us. Zeus's sister wife, Hera, was the queen of the Olympian gods and she was an extremely jealous wife, a wife who'd had enough of dealing with Zeus's affairs. She was the goddess of marriage after all and her husband constantly couldn't keep it in his pants or in their marriage bed. 
Or even in the family. Come on. (laughs) We don't want to go in the family. So Harry decided to put an end to Zeus's latest infatuation. And the stories differ as to what exactly happened next, but we're going with our favorite version. In this version, Hera disguised herself as Semele's old nurse and went down to Thebes to stir up some shit. Hera, disguised as Semele's nurse, started to sow seeds of doubt. Semele's doing her regular thing, which is like, hey, you see that guy? We're totally banging. And by banging, we're having consensual sexual intercourse. And I'm pregnant with this kid. So I'm going to tell you how I got up there. <laughs> you want me to tell you about the secrets of life? <laughs> <laughs> And Hera, disguised as the nurse, is just giving her this skeptical look the whole time. She's like, all right, you know what? Let's just like take a deep breath here, Semele. No, I'm filled with his divine radiance. Can we just talk about the divine radiance and about how it might neither be divine nor particularly radiant? What? All right, well, I'm just going to lay this out. Sure, this guy who got you knocked up says he's Zeus, but has he ever really proved it? Has he? Well, I mean, he said it. He's Zeus. Look at the beard. He's exactly like the statue. Has he ever done anything particularly godlike is my question. He's not one of those gods who has to like be all flashy. Has he ever disguised himself convincingly as an animal? Well, I mean... No. Okay. Has he met your friends and family, at least? He's the king of the gods. He's really busy. Like, I've invited him over to, like, brunch so many times, but he all of a sudden had to, like, handle some stuff on the other side of the world, and he's the king of the gods. I can't, like, say, no, don't handle this earthquake somewhere else or lightning storm. Honey. You deserve so much better. If this guy is really Zeus, if he's really the king of the gods, he should reveal himself to you in all of his godly glory, and he should definitely meet your parents. Otherwise, he might just be some guy who's claiming to be Zeus. And if you really want to be sure, here's how you do it. Ask him to swear on the river Styx to reveal himself to you in his true form. Because, you know, a god can't break a vow that he's sworn on the river Styx. It's an unbreakable kind of vow. But <laughs> Just do it for your own peace of mind. It might turn out that he really is is Zeus and then you can you know go on bragging about it like nothing can go wrong right because I know he's Zeus like there's no harm in asking and forcing him to swear an unbreakable vow there's no harm in that he's not a god am I ghost pregnant you might actually be ghost pregnant have you peed on a stick I mean they don't have that yet (laughs) (laughs) just go find a stick and pee on it You definitely can't fault Hera for her logic here, right, Jen? (laughs) No, it's pretty airtight here. This logic is rock solid. I mean, let's be real. Anybody could claim to be Zeus. And once the seeds of doubt were sown, Semele couldn't get this idea out of her head. She's like, what if this guy who I've been telling everyone, Zeus, and I've been having this amazing whirlwind affair with, isn't really who he says he is? What if he's just some rando who's been playing me all these months? I mean, he also won't meet her parents. That's a giant red flag in my opinion. Total red flag. So that evening, when Semele's boyfriend, quote unquote, Zeus or whoever, showed up, she gave him the big doe eyes and she said something like, hey, lover God. (laughs) This is how they talk to each other in bed. Hey, lover God. You remember how you promised me that you'd do anything I asked you to? And you know that Zeus got that look like, where the fuck is this going? And you know, he's nodding sagely because, you know, he's the king of the gods. All right, ask away. Semele, you know, looked up at him. He was like, well, I just need 
receive one tiny little thing from you, like a super small favor that you could totally grant, right? I mean, you are the king of the gods. And of course, Zeus got all blustery and he gives her a look like, I'm the king of the gods. Go ahead. Ask away, king immortal. So with much ego stroking and whatever else was happening. Definitely some stroking going on. Of something, Semele asked Zeus to pretty please swear on the river sticks that he would grant whatever favor she asked next. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no pre-knowledge of what I'm going to say. And Zeus took a beat and he was like, all right, hang on. Well, here's the thing, Semele. Like, I really, really, really like you. But swearing on the river sticks is like a no take backs kind of thing. And super bad things can happen if I lie. And Semele just gave him a really dark look and was like, exactly. That's the point. Swear. So Zeus swore on the river sticks, and the next words out of Semele's mouth were something to the effect of, I want you to reveal yourself in all your godly glory to me to prove you're really the king of the gods. And Zeus tried really hard to explain to Semele that this was a shit idea. He was the king of the gods. His celestial form would actually cause her to erupt into flames or shatter into a million pieces. She'd be struck by lightning or die in a fire. Terrible shit's gonna happen. No mortal gets to see a god in his divine form and lives to tell the tale. But Semele in insisted. She reminded Zeus that he swore on the river Styx. And didn't he remember the consequences for swearing on the river Styx? That whole thing about how you can't go back on your promises? Definitely a no-take-backsies situation? Zeus had no choice but to reveal his divine form to Semele. And sure enough, Zeus's divine form was enough to kill Semele. But before Semele could burst into flame and die from the beauty of Zeus, the king of the gods snatched her unborn baby from her womb and stuffed the child into his thigh. So is this like a really very fast impromptu C-section here? Yeah. I mean, she's melting and there's a baby that he kind of wants to keep alive. And he's like, shoop, boop. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess we know where his priorities are. Jesus. I mean, I think the problem was there is kind of nothing he can do. Women are just a vessel for babies. We're just wombs. That's all. I warned you this is a terrible idea. If you happen to catch your girlfriend on fire by swearing on the river sticks, it's totally ethical to rip the baby out of her womb and stuff it in your thigh. So anyway, let's get back to this baby. Zeus has put it inside his thigh, which is just a totally weird place to incubate an unborn child, but proves that Zeus was a better father than his dear old dad Cronus. The bar is very low, let's just say that. So in this one version of this myth that I googled, it claimed that thigh is a euphemism for testicles. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Jen. It doesn't surprise me. I can't attest to it, but now that I know it, I just want to run with it. Yeah, we're going to run with it. So Zeus was now gestating a baby in his nutsack. Baby ball sack. <laughs> <laughs> so in a few months' time, once baby ball sack Dionysus was ready to be born, he was extracted from Zeus's thigh. And by thigh, we definitely mean ball sack. And this is where Dionysus gets one of his nicknames, the twice born, because Dionysus was born from both his mortal mother and his divine father. Dionysus did not come out of Zeus's ball sack looking normal. Nope. No, he was crowned with serpents, had horns and could change shape. That was not normal even for a demigod because with a mortal mother and a godly father, Dionysus should have been a demigod, but this is the first time Dionysus started defying expectations right fresh out of the womb, the testicle womb. Ball sack. <laughs> he was not a normal demigod. He was a lot more. 
he was. And you have to understand that would have been terrifying to his stepmother, Hera. Right. So we're not sure how Zeus managed to hide the baby gestating in his ball sack from his wife. Maybe Hera just wasn't that observant. <laughs> but she probably was on to this whole situation because once Dionysus was born, she was not, absolutely not, not even for one second, going to put up with another one of Zeus's freaking bastards. No, God. And Hera really wanted to make an example out of Dionysus. So Zeus called in a few favors and entrusted the boy to the perpetually drunk Silenus and the nymphs on Mount Nysa. And incidentally, Nysa means beginning in Greek. So on this mountain of beginnings, Dionysus had a good time living his best life with Silenus, who was kind of a satyr, but not exactly. He was sort of more like a horse. Satyrs are usually goat people. Satyrs usually are goats, and they have like goat horns and goat legs and human bodies. But Silenus sometimes had the ears of a horse or the legs of a horse or not, because stories are a little sketchy on the exact details. Nymphs in Greek and Roman mythology were actually minor deities or very lower goddesses of different areas like trees and plants and water and stuff like that. And it really is important to remember that Dionysus becomes a god of nature. So he is very much being raised by other gods of nature. But Silenus became Dionysus's first follower and his tutor. And when he got drunk, he could tell the future, which is foreshadowing for how Dionysus was able to gift his priestesses with the power of prophecy. Spoiler, make sure you have some good wine on hand. And it's while Dionysus was chilling with his nymphs and satyrs that he figured out how to cultivate wine because, you know, everybody needs a side hustle. This is from Oppian, quote, When Dionysus was now come to boyhood, he played with the other children. He would cut a fennel stalk and smite the hard rocks, and from their wounds they poured for the gods sweet liquor. I mean, open bar. What a show-off. Such a show-off. Cheers, Jen. Cheers, Jenny. To Dionysus in the open bar. According to Nonus's Dionysiaca, Dionysus figured out how to cultivate wine a little differently. Quote, when Bacchus, Bacchus is uh, Dionysus in this. Bacchus is the Roman name for Dionysus. So when Bacchus saw the wild grapes with a belly full of red juice, he dug into the rock. He hollowed out a pit in the stone with the sharp prongs of his earth-burrowing pick. He smoothed the sides of the deepening hold and made an excavation like a wine press. And then he made the first ever batch of wine. So let's take a minute and talk about the actual history of wine because it's tied into the history of Dionysus. It is. And what's so fascinating is that the story we've just heard about Dionysus and how he was pressing that wine originally is mirrored in history. The earliest evidence of the ancient Greek cultivation of wine dates back to 6,500 years ago, and Nonus's description bears some resemblance to the actual ancient methods of winemaking. According to an article on Ancient History Encyclopedia, quote, grapes were harvested and then pressed underfoot in large pottery vessels, baskets, stone vats, or on a simple tiled floor which sloped into a collecting channel. The process became more sophisticated with the invention of beam and weight presses, which increased the crushing efficiency and which later evolved into even better screw presses from the first century CE. I think that's really interesting because the way that it's described in the Dionysiaca is that he dug a pit in the stone and smoothed the sides of the pit. So it's like he's making his own sort of vessel in the ground to crush the grapes in. Yeah, and a channel so that it flows downward. Like it is actually showing you in the mythology, the ancient winemaking that we see in the archaeology. It's 
fascinating. Yeah. So once the wine was pressed, then it was stored in terracotta and forest underground. And this is just a fun fact that I came across, but I knew Jenny would want to know it. The ancient Greeks added seawater to their wine to cut down on the acidity in the fermentation. I wonder what it tasted like. Do you think the wine was salty? I don't know. I guess it would depend on how much seawater was used and how it interacted with everything else in the process and how acidic the wine was. Like it probably varied by region. We know nothing about winemaking. If anybody has any thoughts on that, tweet us because I'm super interested. So Dionysus spent some of his childhood with Salinas and the nymphs making wine until Hera discovered he was hiding there on Mount Nysa with Salinas and the nymphs and got furious. Zeus moved Dionysus to another safe place, the home of his aunt Eno, sister of Semele. And there, Dionysus was dressed as a girl to keep his identity a secret. And to all intents and purposes, Dionysus was totally happy to be disguised as a girl. He did not have any problems with being disguised as a woman. He didn't feel emasculated. He was really gender fluid and his described as being very feminine as well as very masculine. So I don't know, Jen, I just have to swoon at that. He's totally fine with being who he is, which is really nice and refreshing in this extremely patriarchal world that we are living in here. Yeah. But Hera figured out that Dionysus was living with his aunt because this maybe was not as safe a hiding place as Zeus thought. So Hera cursed Eno and her husband, the king, with madness, which made the king and queen tear their own son to pieces. And remember that particular type of death because it comes up a lot in Dionysus' mythography. So after his aunt and uncle came to their senses and realized they'd torn their son limb from limb, Dionysus once again got the boot or maybe the severed foot in a boot. Maybe just the exile. He got kicked out of the country is the essential thing here. Dionysus was now homeless and he started wandering, trying to outrun his stepmother's wrath. And this is a really common theme with all of Zeus's demigod children. Hera always finds out about these demigod kids and she always wants some kind of vengeance on the child of Zeus or Zeus's mistress. Never on Zeus, of course, because dudes. And also... It's possible that Hera can never take her revenge out on Zeus because he was another god. And the gods tended not to outright attack each other within their own pantheon. She's not really able to just go to her husband and be like, I'm just going to castrate you. Yeah, we cool? I'm just going to smite the fuck out of you. And not in a fun way. Exactly. That wasn't something she was able to do. And I'm sure there were quite a lot of gods who thought the same thing. There's a line. If we just took that dick off, he couldn't get into all this trouble anymore. Maybe he'd stop turning into like a golden shower. Literally, he did that in one myth. The Dene one. Yeah, he was a golden shower. A shaft of light with a giant dong in it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so... I suspect there were quite a lot of other gods who felt that way. And maybe there was some agreement that they couldn't outright attack each other. And that is the only thing that kept full out war between Hera and Zeus, I suspect. Anyway, what did Hera do? According to some myths, she cursed Dionysus with madness. And that curse would only be lifted after he went around the ancient world and showed everyone how to make wine out of grapes and got the mortals to accept his divinity. Hera kept her gaze firmly fixed on Dionysus and she loved to stir up trouble and just curse people with madness wherever he went to keep the entire situation really, really hot for him. Dionysus's madness was only really lifted when he passed on his knowledge of winemaking and shared the rights of his bacchanals. 
allowing people to lose themselves in his ritual madness. It's interesting that madness and wine are now being tied together in this myth. Yeah, and I would say this is ancient madness. We're not talking about mental illness. What we're talking about here has a lot more to do with this madness that allows you to touch the divine, that potentially gives you prophetic visions and allows you to pierce the veil of the other world. It's not madness that descends on you and doesn't leave. It's not mental illness. It is very much focused on the right within this religion and this cult that comes from Dionysus. And I feel like we just need to explain that because when you throw around the word madness a lot, especially in today's day and age, I can see confusion, but that is not what we're talking about. Yeah, I think the ancients had a really different or sort of more religious understanding of that term than we do today. I think in ancient Greece, people really did see the intoxication of wine and other substances as leading to that form of maybe holy madness sometimes. Yeah, they did. And you're going to hear us say madness quite a lot throughout this episode. And that's what we're talking about. Touching the divine through Dionysus's orgiastic madness. But Dionysus wasn't just sharing ritual madness and a knowledge of the divine and winemaking with his followers, right? It was more than that. It was more than that because he also had to show those gods back on Mount Olympus that he should be respected and taken seriously. And you know what? I am Dionysus and I should be treated as a god myself. Look what I can do, guys. The gods on Olympus thought, you are just a demigod. You're just one of Zeus's many bastards. He's got a lot of them, like just chill. And Dionysus is like, oh no, I am not. Baby, I'm going to show you who I am. He could shapeshift. He could produce wine from wherever he went. He could send down ritual madness. The old gods just did not take him seriously. They just looked at him and they were like, you are such a flash in the pan. Yeah, and they didn't want to give him his rightful place in Mount Olympus. And part of what he's doing with these travels is proving to the gods that he deserves that place on Mount Olympus. Absolutely. And I suspect some of this had to do with those gods on Mount Olympus were Hera's divine children (laughs) with Zeus, his legitimate kids. And they and Hera were probably not thrilled about this idea of admitting Zeus's kids with mortals into their pantheon because standards, man, like then anybody can be a god. I know if we're just letting Dionysus in, I guess we have to just let everybody in. And we got to let Hercules and Theseus and Perseus and Helen of Sparta in. Like, oh, this whole place is going to be crowded. We're just going to really lower the bar up here and we're not into that. Okay. No, no. Standards. Standards. So Dionysus has this mission of sorts now. He needs to go across the ancient world and spread the good news about himself, Dionysus. He's like evangelizing. He's absolutely evangelizing and proselytizing. He's literally coming up to your doorbell. He's dressed in his nicest outfit. He might just be in his great leopard skin. He's wearing, you know, his crown of ivy. All done up. Knocking on your little home and it says, have you heard the good news about me? Have you accepted me into your heart? Let me tell you about something that will change your life. And if you said no, bad things happen, right, Jen? Well, if you said no and had no ability to change or listen to him, because he always gave you a couple of chances to recant, bad things happened. You have to accept Dionysus into your life or else. (laughs) Anyway, Dionysus is traveling all across the ancient world and spreading the good news about Dionysus and wine and getting people to accept him as a god because if the mortals won't accept his divinity, good luck convincing his divine dysfunctional family that he deserved a place among them. But he was met with a lot 
lot of resistance. It wasn't easy to attract followers in ancient Greece, turns out, even if you really are a god, even if you're the real thing. People didn't want to accept Dionysus and his flashy new drink. They liked their old fermented honey and mare's milk drinks. What even is this newfangled wine anyway? And why is it so strong? And who's this wild guy with those crazy eyes who keeps insisting he's a god, saying I have to accept Dionysus into my heart? And here's where we get some really interesting insight into the god that Dionysus would become. Unlike Heracles or Theseus, he doesn't have super strength or fighting skills. Instead, Dionysus is a master of masks and disguises. He's fluid, not just in his sexual identity, but in his form as well. He can and does shapeshift. He's someone who's not concerned with the status quo. He's just as happy enjoying the company of drunken satyrs and nymphs as he is lounging around in women's clothes. Someone who, even at a young age, attracts a band of followers. He's not a hero who travels somewhere on his own doing brave deeds. He's someone who travels in a pack. And where he travels, the people he meets are never the same. I feel like... This Dionysus guy has some parallels to a very modern religion. I see so much of the original Jesus in Dionysus. I do too. Not like the Christ figure of modern Christianity, but like old school OG Jesus. You know, the guy who hung out with sex workers and lepers and people on the margins of society and like challenged the status quo and overturned money changers tables in the temples or whatever that story is. Like that guy. Jesus hung out with lepers. Dionysus could turn into a leopard. (laughs) (laughs) I see so many parallels. No, but for real, I do. Like, I feel like they were both revolutionaries in this very particular way who were attracted to and hung out with the marginalized. And to be fair, they were both revolutionaries who people who eventually rebelled against Rome took as their patrons and followed that religion. And to me, that is the interesting thing here. When Christianity comes up in the end of the Roman Empire, it is directly against what the Roman Empire is preaching, which is not so different from what we're looking at with Dionysus. Yeah, and Dionysus also evangelizes. I'm sure you probably know more about this than I do, Jen, but I don't really know if other cults in the ancient world did that so much. I think the thing about the cult of Dionysus Dionysus is number one, we don't know a lot about it. We don't. It was very secretive and what we've got, it's piecemeal at best. And Dionysus is involved in so many other cults. He's involved in the cult of Orpheus. He's involved in the Elysian mysteries as well as his own rituals. He even has a festival after him, which is, I believe, the Dionysica, which is the festival of plays in Athens. His fingers are in a lot of pies, but it does not surprise me that when we start to see the Jesus stories coming up, that he bears such striking similarities to Dionysus, this wandering guy who was born of a mortal, but with a divine father. People don't believe initially that he's a god. They don't believe initially that he's a god. He travels with a pack of followers. He travels with a pack of followers. And the important thing about the followers who follow Dionysus is they are the marginalized. They are the disenfranchised. They are the people who the upper society look down upon. And it's the same with the early stories of Jesus. The people who are following him are, as you said, sex workers. They're disenfranchised. They are fishermen. They are tax collectors. They are are The women. Women were very attracted to Jesus initially, to the early cult of Christianity, and women were a big part of the rituals of Dionysus too. Absolutely. And I think the interesting thing here is that both Dionysus and Jesus have this wandering. They both go to different places in the ancient world and they have to spread the word. They have to give this good news of who they are, what they stand for. And that is how their legend spread. It goes from place to place to place. It is one of those things where time and again, I keep seeing this metaphor within Dionysus of what he had to do, how he had to go to people, how he was thrown 
thrown out of cities or treated poorly or people didn't understand who he was or what he was doing. Dionysus wasn't like other gods. Dionysus had suffered. Dionysus was a god who had grown up, who hadn't just appeared in the world, fully formed and gorgeous, filled with wisdom, ready to grab a lightning bolt. No, Dionysus was a guy who had to learn, who had to be hidden away, who had to teach others to fear and respect him. So um, Dionysus, getting back to what Dionysus is doing right now, he's on a quest. He's got to outrun his own madness by passing it on to other people via winemaking. He's got to convince everyone he's a god and claim his birthright. But he follows a very untraditional quest narrative. Generally, demigods have their own hero journey to prove their worthiness. Either they slay a minotaur or face a series of impossible tasks or rescue a golden fleet that kind of thing. But that's not the case with Dionysus. Dionysus discovered and cultivated grapes and wine, and wherever he went, he shared that knowledge. Dionysus was a useful god, a practical god. He was the god who was gonna get you drunk. And he was also a god of agriculture, theater, ritual madness, ecstasy, and revolution. And the guests he brought were nothing short of divinity in a glass. Ancient Greeks saw wine as a sacred thing. It was used in ritual worship, and it was also medicinal. It was life-giving, sorrow-relieving, it could bring you joy, and it could cause you and your family pain. And it was also the way many people made their livelihood. Wine grapes were as all-encompassing as any other crop. The vines were fragile to start. So much depended on the right conditions. And then you had to hope for a good harvest, a successful pressing, and you waited and prayed that your wine turned out well and didn't go to vinegar. And this process required a lot of faith. Faith in what you knew and faith that the god Dionysus would bless you with a good finished product. In a lot of ways, wine was the perfect metaphor for Dionysus. He could give you so much joy, life, happiness, and he could also curse you with madness and ruin. And as a result, he was a god who was very near and dear to the poor, to women, to outcasts, and to firebrands. So Dionysus's wanderings tell us important stories about why people worshipped him, feared him, and what he ultimately wound up representing to the ancient Greeks and Romans. Because everywhere Dionysus went, he challenged the old world order. He forced people to accept him as he was, a stranger in their land, a demigod claiming full divinity, and demanding that they accept him (laughs) into their hearts. He's like, have you accepted Dionysus into your heart? And everyone, you had to say yes. You can't say no to Dionysus. You can't say no to Dionysus. Dionysus is going to go balls deep into your heart and you just have to accept it. <laughs> God, it's just very rapey. I'm sorry. <laughs> the ancient world, the standards are just so low. The standards are low, you guys. Dionysus is always referred to as a foreign god, as a god who came to Greece as opposed to one who originated in Greece. But the truth is, you can find mentions of Dionysus in Linear B, which is the earliest form of Greek writing. It was a syllabic script that was used to write Mycenaean Greek. It dates from around 1450 BC and predates the Greek alphabet. The earliest examples of Linear B that mentioned Dionysus were found on Crete in three fragmentary tablets that date to around 1250 BC. Intriguingly, these tablets mention offerings of wine made to the god Dionysoio. Other roughly analogous carvings refer to the women of Oenoa, which is associated with Dionysus. So it's possible Dionysus originated in Crete and that his associations with female followers in wine were already firmly established by this time. But Dionysus may be even older than that. He's also been linked to Minoan Crete and specifically the palace of Knossos. Men in this area 
in this region at this time were often given the name of Pentheus, and this name is heavily linked to Dionysian myth. We'll tell you the story later in this episode about Pentheus and Dionysus. The word Pentheus is actually tied to a root that means suffering. Some scholars have argued that the name Pentheus may have once been a title of Dionysus himself and used to describe a god who had to suffer before he triumphed and found his divinity. So these early dates for Dionysus make me wonder if early origin myths of Dionysus were lost in the Bronze Age collapse. And that happened around 1200 BC, just 50 years after the earliest known mention of Dionysus in Linear B. And it was a period of violent upheaval during which many of the strongest societies of the Bronze Age, Egyptian, Hittite, Mycenaean, Phoenician, and more, collapsed. And we don't know exactly why the Bronze Age collapse happened. Historians have argued about different causes, including climate change, warfare, volcanoes. Team volcano right here. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. We want to do an episode, maybe even a whole arc on this. But lots of cultural practices were lost or irrevocably changed during the chaos of this roughly 50-year period. Maybe the myth of Dionysus was changed as well. And this starts to explain why the Greeks saw Dionysus as an outsider god. But I don't know. I mean, this is fan fiction. We're making this up. It's so interesting. And when I was doing the research, that's what stuck out to me. And I'm a total volcano nerd. And one of the big things that I can't wait to cover besides Pompeii is the Thera eruption in Santorini, which is one of the things that potentially led to the Bronze Age collapse and definitely was a nail in the coffin of the Minoan society. And that's the interesting thing about this timing is that it's clear that Dionysus was being talked about and written about before the Bronze Age collapse, but we don't have a lot of proof about him existing a lot before then. But it's probable that he had like an existing mythography that dated before then. Like he was probably established by that time. Yeah, we know that because of the ruins at Gnosis where we see the evidence you just talked about. That is all about Dionysus. It's already got Pentheus in there. Like there's this whole history that's already there, but then it's lost. And when we talk about the Bronze Age collapse and particularly the theory eruption, I think you'll get more of an idea of why. I remember being in Crete and seeing all of this snake iconography. There were so many figurines of women with snakes, like women handling snakes. And that's actually very Dionysian as well. And we're going to get to that. It's very Dionysian as well. We're getting to it. This rabbit hole goes real deep. So if you're a little bit lost with these details, it's okay. You're in the place you should be. You're in the place you should be, and by the time you finish this two-parter, it will all make sense. So, if Dionysus was mentioned in Linear B, why does he crop up in Greek mythology as a new god? As a god who comes to Greece via an ancient road world trip? Why are they talking about him as a stranger when he actually might be one of the most original of the Greek gods? Jenny, there's a lot of theories. First off, Ventilius did it. A wizard did it. A wizard did it. (laughs) The fall of the Minoan culture, the collapse of the Bronze Age, a giant volcanic eruption. Ancient aliens. I'm team alien over here. Oh, please. Volcano all the way. But a more sensible argument could be made that it all goes back to how wine and mead were cultivated and when wine became the preferred drink among the ancient Greeks. Dionysus wasn't just associated with wine. He was also associated with mead because one of the things he taught people was how to wake up the bees. So they'll make honey, which can be fermented into mead, which is an even older alcoholic beverage than wine. Dionysus is associated with mead and wine. Mead dates back to around 7000 BC and is believed to be the first alcoholic drink produced. Or maybe beer. Like, I feel like it's one of the earlier alcoholic beverages. I could have that wrong, but it is a very, very old drink. I think it's the oldest. 
So mead was originally considered the drink of the gods. It was sweet and strong and much like wine had the capacity to get you drunk. According to liquor.com, which is a great place to be, quote, the very first batch of mead was probably a chance discovery. Early foragers likely drank the contents of a rainwater flooded beehive that had fermented naturally with the help of airborne yeast. Referred to as the nectar of the gods by ancient Greeks, mead was believed to be dew sent from the heavens and collected by bees. Many European cultures considered bees to be the gods' messengers, and mead was thus associated with immortality and other magical powers, such as Olympus-level strength and wit. For this reason, mead continued to factor heavily in Greek ceremonies even after its eventual decline in drinking popularity. So... The thing that I found so fascinating and why I included this quote is it talks about how mead was probably found by people who just drank the contents of a rainwater-soaked beehive. That's it. I bet there'd be a lot of dead insects in there. Potentially, but if there had been a big storm and it was flooded with rainwater, the bees would have been drowned and abandoned the hive, and you would have had the honey which would have fermented by airborne yeast. But you know what's super interesting to me about this is that where they mention about how the contents of this fan fiction idea of how mead was discovered is that it's the contents of this rainwater flooded beehive that had fermented naturally with the help of airborne yeast. And um, I used to have this boyfriend who was really into making beer, like making homemade beer. And I actually made a homemade mead. And um, we've told the story of the blackout mead in previous episodes. So I'm not going to tell that story here. But what I am going to say is that you get your yeast like in a package when you're making your own beer. And there's a certain point where you put it in the mixture that you're making in order to ferment it. And in ancient times, that's not how it was done. People just left their mixture, you know, like they left the thing that they wanted to ferment outside and hoped that a yeast, which is like a microscopic animal, basically would drift by and ferment their brew. And the taste of your brew would really vary depending on the type of yeast that you had. And people, of course, in the ancient world didn't know what yeast was, and they didn't know about microscopic bacteria and animals and things like that. So I feel like that must have been the divine aspect of alcohol, you know, this idea that you can leave a brew out and wait to see what happens, and maybe the god would touch it with a divine fermentation, and maybe they wouldn't. Well, I also think that's where the bees come from because the bees are very emblematic. If you go to Crete, they're very emblematic of society working together. But also, they were the messengers of the gods. They were the creators of mead. They were the carriers of honey. And the ancient peoples really revered them for this reason. Yeah, and that really makes a lot of sense because if you don't have a scientific explanation for how yeast gets into something that you're trying to ferment and you think it's agency of the gods and you see bees kind of hovering around that mixture, like it's actually a really logical conclusion to draw that the bees are bringing that divinity into the brew. Absolutely. And we talked about this earlier when we were talking about how they made wine. A lot of what you have to do is hope that it's going to turn out okay. Ancient people realized quickly that drinking a lot of mead made you really funny and feel pretty amazing. Maybe you feel even a little bit divine. Pretty much the ancients realized that drinking mead got you drunk and being drunk was a good feeling. And it's interesting that being drunk is a feeling associated with the gods because this idea of being drunk on power might actually stem all the way back to being drunk on mead or wine or other beverages. Well, in particularly mead, because in the quote we just looked at, it said that when the ancients discovered mead, they felt like 
like they had super strength and they were super smart and they were super clever. And it was like this little bit of the gods had come into them by this need. So that's why when I was doing the research, when you think about being drunk on power, actually may go all the way back to being drunk on need. And the first time they had this substance that made them feel kind of divine. So the path of mead is a lot like the path of wine. It seems to have been cropping up independently and then following the ancient trade routes. With cultural exchange between Greece, Egypt, Thrace, India, Italy, other places, it wasn't long before everyone in the ancient Mediterranean world was drinking mead. Mead was kind of the original drink of choice. It was a heady drink that you could get very drunk on. And I can corroborate blackout mead is a thing. It absolutely is, and you will be so miserable afterwards. Before you are miserable, you will feel like you've been touched by the gods. That was one of the best nights, and then the next day, that is in my top five hangovers of all time. Fine. We lived through it. We did. We survived. Honey was the thing that made everything sweeter because there was no sugar, stevia in the ancient world. So you can imagine this drink that was made from honey that had the power to take you away from the normal, to give you a sensation of being outside of yourself was incredibly attractive to people in the ancient world. It was one of the few things that could take you away from the day-to-day grind and allow you to feel free. And of course, it could swallow you up in its excess, like, you know, any alcoholic drink. But this was the first one, maybe. And that was the double side to Dionysus's gifts. They were both wonderful and terrible. So let's talk for a minute about the path of wine. Wine is being cultivated all over the ancient world in one form or another. The process of fermenting grapes dates from about 9,000 years ago in China, but actual wine wasn't made until 8,000 years ago in Georgia. Wine was widely traded by the Phoenicians from the 1200s BC to 539 BC. The Phoenicians brought wine to Greece, North Africa, and the Middle East. It was around this time in the Jewish faith that we start to see wine being used in religious ceremonies. It is this trade that gives us the first example of someone drunk on wine, which is Noah in Genesis. The Hebrew scriptures were written down between 1200 and 165 BC. So essentially, the oldest example we have of someone being drunk is Noah in Genesis. So this is the oldest example of a story being told where somebody is drunk. Yes. It's difficult to date exactly how old this story is because it's possible these stories existed in an oral tradition but weren't codified. It also corresponds to the earliest mention of Dionysus that we have in Linear B. It does. So Jenny, what does Noah do as soon as he gets drunk on wine? I don't know. Why don't you tell me? (laughs) He takes his junk out to his sons, just flops it out. (laughs) Of course he does. I love that so hard. But that also shows that dual nature to wine. Wine is something that can alleviate pain and sorrows and also make you make some poor decisions. (laughs) Correct. Anyway, so it's around this time that wine starts to supplant mead as the drink of choice. I have a few theories on why that is. One, because you can make a lot more wine. You can make bigger batches of wine than mead. It was just more easily able to be mass produced. And two, because the shipping of wine had changed during this period. Not to get too technical, but in addition to figuring out how to cultivate wine, the ancient people also figured out how to transport it. And this was game changing. Large batches of wine were able to be shipped across the Mediterranean. In the 800s BC, the spread of wine changed and the main exporters were now the ancient Greeks. So can we just back up for a second? The method of transporting wine was in these amphorae that were basically like human sized. And there was a really specific method of stacking the amphorae in the hold of ancient ships. These amphorae were designed to be stackable. 
So the amphora were designed to be interlocking so that they could be stacked in kind of like a beehive way so that all the weight was divided equally across the bottom of the ship and that would make it much easier to transport. This was completely game changing. People were now able to ship more wine along with other goods. And again, this is about that trade of wine that the Phoenicians begin with. And as we start moving a bit forward in time, the ancient Greeks take over and it's in the 800s BC that the spread of wine changed and now the ancient Greeks were the main exporters of wine. So this is a quote from the article, How Wine Colonized the World. Quote, the Greeks, having been exposed to wine by the Phoenicians, began to perfect the beverage. Wine becomes a symbol for trade, religion, and health. A god is named in honor of wine, Dionysus. As the Greek city-states begin to rise in power, they colonize other land around the Mediterranean and, along with their armies, travel with wine. After a new colony was conquered, Greeks would settle the area, bringing grapevines with them. Sicily and southern Italy formed some of the earliest colonies, and the wine then traveled up the boot toward Rome. So it's possible that the legend of Dionysus followed the path of wine. It's quite possible he's the latest iteration we know about a very ancient god of intoxication and all the freedom, violence, and subversion that comes with it. A god that traveled in the path of alcohol itself. Looked at it this way, Dionysus, or his precursor, could very well have been brought to Greece circa 4500 BC. This is the earliest evidence of winemaking in Greece that we have. And that means his myth could predate both Mycenaean and Minoan culture. I mean, there's no proof of this, but it's a good idea. And it's possible there are millennia of missing myths and stories somewhere that tell us why Dionysus was born in Thebes, in Greece, appears in Linear B, and then later on is referred to as a foreign god. So after being booted out of Thebes, where he grew up, Dionysus wanders across the ancient world. He makes his way through India and introduces everyone there to wine. And wine was actually believed to have been introduced to India by Phoenicians in 4000 BC or thereabouts. So we're following the path of Dionysus through the path of wine. He also visits Egypt and brings them the knowledge of how to cultivate wine. And viniculture arose in the Nile Delta around maybe 3000 BC. Grapes were introduced from the Middle East and Mediterranean. So that tracks. And everyone seems really happy with this. Sometimes they get off to a rocky start. But Dionysus is a god who will be feared if he can't be loved. And by the time he leaves India and Egypt, he's loved or else. <laughs> so the stories that have come down to us all follow a similar pattern. Dionysus came, he saw, he taught people how to make wine, he demanded to be acknowledged as a god, and if they didn't, he gave them some madness. He asked people to put down their ordinary lives for a few days and get down with the music and the dancing and the ritual. And... This kind of party wasn't something people were used to. These festivals weren't on the calendar. They weren't carefully planned for or structured. They were wild and free and untamed and kind of spontaneous. They were the kind of house party that we have all been to where you know whoever lives at that house in question is going to be in some serious trouble when their hangover clears up and they realize how fucking trash their house is. Dionysus rolls into town and trashes your house. He trashes your life, man. You just have to accept the good news. You do. When Dionysus rolled up into your community, he demanded that you stop your everyday life. Stop whatever you're doing, Jenny. No working. No teaching. No harvesting. No planting. No warring. No writing. No worship. No writing episodes and editing sound and doing the social for the podcast. I'm like, Dionysus, I'm on deadline right now. And Dionysus doesn't give a fuck about your deadlines. Absolutely not. 
Dionysus is like, I'm going to take you away for a week. He was literally the reason for the season. He was the reason that you have grapes and bees and life. Dionysus wanted people to put him on the goddamn festival calendar like all the other big gods. And the only way he was going to get that was to go to town, bringing the biggest and best party people had ever seen to each community. And if you were an unlucky person who didn't immediately decide that Dionysus was going to be accepted into your heart, he'd curse you with the madness. This madness would come on very suddenly and it could incite you to kill your whole family or rip someone limb from limb. This type of madness usually had to do with some one, usually someone close to you getting murdered in a horrible way because you didn't accept Dionysus into your heart. Look, if you don't accept Dionysus into your heart, you're probably going to have to rip someone very close to you limb from limb might be a family member. Jenny, I beg of you, please accept Dionysus into your heart because I need my limbs. Listen, I already have, Jen. I'm drinking all the way through this episode as a tribute to Dionysus and Mark Antony. <laughs> Who you're channeling. Both of them. Balls deep. <laughs> I moonlight as a mayonnaise. I am balls deep in the Dionysus cult, and it's because of you. If Dionysus didn't curse you to murder someone you loved in a horrible way, he'd curse your crops, or, you know, he'd sour that wine. Or worse, he'd curse the women of the community with madness. So as he traveled, Dionysus picked up a band of followers, satyrs, panthers, leopards, bulls, and women called mayonnaise. Mayonads, whose name literally means the mad ones or raving ones, were Dionysus's female followers, and they were fierce. It's said they were driven out of their minds by their worship of Dionysus. They wore their hair unbound. They followed the god wherever he traveled. They left their families. They danced. Oh, how they danced. And they drank to excess. They had prophetic visions. They wielded the thyrsus, which was a long wad of fennel wrapped in either ivy or vines and topped with a pine cone and red and white ribbons. I mean, this was basically a dick that was spurting blood and semen, right? <laughs> I mean, could you not say that yet? Because we talk about it a little bit later. I'm sorry. I talked about the, the spurting penis and I shouldn't have talked about it. Oh, this is always my life. Damn it, Jenny. You're ruining the flow. We versus. <laughs> I just talked about the dick stick and I wasn't supposed to talk about the dick stick. <laughs> this was a symbol of fertility. Very phallic with his long stock and its pine cone head. And I keep leaning toward the dick stick, but I'm not allowed to say it. Guys, this is the episode Jenny drank too much and Jen was not the war elephant for a change. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm Cleopatra in this episode, Mark. <laughs> I'm totally Mark Antony here. We switch roles every so often. We do. So the Thursis was not just a dick stick, John. It was a symbol of pleasure, hedonism, and enjoyment. It was sometimes wrapped in ivy, like you do. Well, it makes sense. I'm just saying, sometimes you wrap your dick in ivy and sometimes you don't. And it was always carried by a mayonnaise. And it dripped honey. Oh, it dripped honey. Do not lick the dick stick. <laughs> It's spurting red and uh, white ribbons, which the red was meant to symbolize blood or wine, and the white was definitely meant to symbolize semen. Yeah. The mayonnaise, I just want to, like, remind you what they looked like. Their hair was wild. It was unbound. It was like my hair when I wake up and I don't have any carotene in it. And it's just these massive curls with probably branches in it because I was out in the woods at night. Leaves and sticks and a whole nest of birds living in there. It was amazing and glorious. They came into town. They were proud. They were marching at the front of this parade. They were gloriously dressed. The really important thing here is they did not look like the normal Greek or Thracian or Roman or Egyptian women. They were just wild and free. 
They weren't worried about how they looked. They weren't worried about projecting a certain image. They were like the rawest form of fuck it. Fuck it! Like that. But they were also described as being raving because people could not understand how they could behave the way they did. There had to be something not right there. And of course, as far as I'm concerned, there was everything right there. Yeah, but I also think that um, if they were on some kind of substance, and possibly that could have been alcohol, possibly other substances were involved in worshipping Dionysus, they would have been considered to be closer to the gods. Like we said before, like madness wasn't just like the women be crazy. It was like, no, you're actually closer to the gods with this form of ritual madness. Absolutely. And I think that's the interesting thing is this madness that comes on you. It's a limited time madness. So it's not a madness that stays throughout your whole life. It's there for four or five days. And if you think about it, if they were quite intoxicated and they were on some sort of drugs, their pupils would definitely be dilated. You know, if they were speaking or singing, it might be faster. It might be slurred. It might be any number of things. And this is what's coming into town. All this noise and procession and music. I mean, it could have just been like a bunch of drunk Santas from SantaCon only dressed as mayonnaise coming into town. That would be awful. Whoa. I've broken us now. <laughs> I'm just going to change the subject. Um, So let's talk about the ivy for a second. Like the grapevine, ivy is also associated with Dionysus. It grows up around the dick stick slash the thyrsus. Let's just call it the thirst stick. I think we should call it the thirst stick. So I was trying to talk about this ivy. So there are two types of vines associated with Dionysus, the grapevine and the ivy. Ivy is basically the anti-grapevine. Unlike grapes, which bloom in the summer, ivy flowers in the winter. And unlike grapes, which need to be carefully cultivated, ivy is hardy, it grows basically everywhere, and it grows wild. This totally represents Dionysus's dual nature. My grandfather was from Italy and he grew up on a farm. And one of the things that he grew was grapes, which were very difficult to grow. They were require you sometimes to wrap the vines so it grows properly. The juxtaposition of this is ivy. Like I said, I've got it all over the place and it just like ivy gonna ivy. It just does what it wants to do. I remember being in college and ivy grew all over the building I lived in to the point where it just looked like a building made of plants. Yeah. And the thing about ivy is it's quite invasive as well. Those roots and when it, when it gets into the crevices in different places, it's doing damage. It's a force of chaos. That is the other side of Dionysus. Yeah. So let's get back to our mayonnaise. And let's talk about mayonnaise fashion. We did Scythian warrior woman fashion. We would be remiss if we didn't do mayonnaise fashion. So mayonnaise had an epic wardrobe of fox skins, ivy crowns, or bull helmets made of like bull skulls. And snakes. Jenny, they wore or handled snakes, like live snakes. Those Minoan, um, if you've ever been to Crete and you've ever, you know, seen these images of women figurines from ancient Minoan culture handling snakes, a lot of those are Dionysian images, right, Jen? Yeah, they wore snakes as like a fashion accessory. And they also had leopards and panthers in their retinue. Sometimes they would wear leopard skin or panther skins. Very ostentatious skins. I think that's the point here. They're not just like sort of run of the mill sheepskin or like cowhide. They stand out. They're not woven clothes. They are something wild. And also they imply fierceness. The implication is that you killed that panther yourself. Absolutely. Or whatever animal that you're wearing, you killed it. And if you think about it, you see someone like Hercules in the mythology wearing the skin of the Nemean lion. And he wears that not just because he's bragging that he killed this lion, but because that skin is also impenetrable. But he is bragging he killed this lion. And we see that again with like the Caledonian boar when they refuse to give Atalanta the boar's skin, whatever. Like the trophy. And usually that trophy would be made into potentially something you wore because that was what was valuable. Clothes. 
Mm-hmm. Dionysus could turn himself into a panther or a leopard, and frequently they had tame panthers and leopards who went along with them. They weren't just taking all their skins. Yeah. The real terror here is the agency that women had. These were women who were out of their proper place, the Greek household. They were women who a god favored and allowed them to behave like they were free. It was terrifying to Greek men. And that's one of the reasons why Dionysus was met with so much distrust when he shows up back in Greece after his journeys through Asia and Egypt. In such a strongly patriarchal culture as ancient Greece, the worship of Dionysus really shows this deep anxiety about gender roles and about the oppression of women. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think one of the telling things here, like Dionysus is kind of beyond the binary. He's gender fluid. And I think that that was one thing that really terrified or unsettled the Greek patriarchy because he's a god that is upending societal structures, not just on the larger macro sense, but in the granular level in the individual homes. Because if you are a man who has a, you know, a wife who is only allowed to be in the house and is forced to basically be a domestic servant, that's what women were supposed to be. And there's all these reasons why women are supposed to stay in the home that have to do with women's nature. If there is a sense that gender is a societal construct and not innately biological, then that means there's no innate reason to oppress women. And that basically upends the entire justification for your control as a male of your own home. Absolutely. And that's why Maynads translates to raving, because they had to vilify these women. Because if you don't vilify them, then all women could just run off and do that. And look at these women with their crazy hair. They don't even know combs exist. Putting them down that way is a way of discouraging If you're a man who is controlling women in your household, it's a way of discouraging your women, quote unquote, from following the man ads and pursuing that freedom. And also there is something that we see in the myths, which we'll get to in a little bit, where women are called out to join Dionysus and they cannot resist his call, unlike men who can resist his call. And it sort of puts women in this position of being lesser and more animalistic. And that's something that's part of the patriarchal storytelling of ancient Greece is you see women being described as more animalistic and less rational than men. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going with that. So we've had our little rant. Now I want to talk about what happened when Dionysus left Asia and he came to the Amazon city of Ephesus. So Ephesus is a Greek city that Mark Antony spent a lot of time in. Absolutely. But originally it was an Amazon city. I mean, I think in Greek myth, it was an Amazon city. I don't think in reality it was an Amazon city. And we don't even know if it's the same Ephesus. It was on his way back from Asia. So it could have been somewhere on that route, maybe in Greece, maybe an island on the way. We're not exactly sure. Dionysus wanted to convert the Amazon warrior women. Who are conveniently located in Ephesus in this story for some reason. They are. We don't know why, but they are. So Dionysus marched to Ephesus. And he didn't just march there alone. Oh, no. He had his band of satyrs who had permanent erections. Because we haven't talked about boners enough in this episode yet. (laughs) No, but anyway. So Dionysus has this band of followers. They are satyrs with their raging boners, maenads, and new followers they've converted throughout Asia and Egypt and Northern Africa. So who else is in his band right now who might be from Asia and North Africa? Well, we've talked about him having new followers, but he had one new species of follower. Do you know what they were? Tell me, Jen. Tell me. I'm on the edge of my seat. They were war elephants! Of course! (laughs) So Dionysus 
just wandered through Asia and North Africa and picked up some war elephant followers. He did. Dionysus had returned from India and now he had a core of war elephants. And this totally makes sense because war elephants are prodigious drinkers. We have covered this. War elephants go into battle drunk. Which is why human gall cocktails exist. So the Amazons, remember there are also Amazons in this story, they did not have war elephants, Jen. No, they didn't. That wasn't part of their army. They had a lot of horses, but no war elephants. And you know what horses do when they get around war elephants unless they've been specially trained, right? They bolt. The Amazons are not going to have a good time here. That's right. You can tell how this battle's going to go. Dionysus took on the Amazons and he won. Elephant win. The Amazons fled to Samos and Dionysus continued to pursue them. We don't know exactly what happened after this point. Just that Dionysus and his badass core of war elephants won. But Amazons are known to drink wine too. And Dionysus is the kind of god who actually respects women. So we think they probably, you know, made up, had a great big party at the end, and accepted Dionysus into their hearts. <laughs> Dionysus and his merry band of followers, panthers, snakes, bulls, leopards, manads, war elephants, and Amazons, continued to travel around the ancient world until they got to Thrace. And here's where our story really starts. This is where things get wild. We've been building to this the whole episode. So Dionysus rocks up into Thrace and he's like, haven't you heard? I'm the OG Dionysus. Worship my ass. <laughs> Let me tell you about the good news. And, <laughs> and <laughs> you are my favorite war elephant and I just love it. <laughs> And his man ads and satyrs and war elephants are like, yo, this dude is the real deal. Everybody put on your fox skins, get your dick sticks out, make an ivy crown, and we're going to show you how to have a really good time. Because worshiping Dionysus meant you had to go all the fuck in. You had to go balls deeper. didn't count. And for men, that meant you had to dress in ways that felt silly or strange because you're just stuck in your masculine paradigm and you don't want to look silly. And you're totally missing out, okay? Wearing a fox skin, carrying a dick wand, and wearing an ivy crown, these were all foreign things, things children did, not things that the warlike, larger-than-life Thracian men did. No way. Honor was at stake. So the king of Thrace, a guy named Lycurgus, was opposed to Dionysus's version of a good time because he was a dick. He was a bummer. Lycurgus was the first king to, quote, show Dionysus hubris. He imprisoned one of Dionysus's maenads. He went to war with Dionysus and drove the gods' advanced party of maenads and satyrs and war elephants out of Thrace. Except for that one maenad that he imprisoned, I guess. Except for the one he imprisoned. She's imprisoned and Dionysus is like, my people need to be free. They need to dance and sing and commune with the divine. That's right. Leave no maenad behind. Exactly. So after this humiliating military defeat, Dionysus got so dejected and sad that he jumped into the sea. When he jumps into the sea, who does he meet? I guess you're going to tell me, aren't you? I'm going to tell you. He meets the mother of one of the ancient world's greatest heroes, Thetis, or Achilles' mom. And here's one thing you should know about Thetis. She was goddamn fierce. She was not cuddly. She was not someone who was like, oh, poor baby. But... In this version of the story, she gives Dionysus a lot of mom cuddles and sympathy because he never got any of that because his mom was burned to a crisp by his dad. Because he was, you know, stuck in his dad's testicles for a while. He was. And this is strange behavior for Thetis because, as I mentioned, she was not a cuddly person. But 
There was something in her that was just touched by this poor, persecuted demigod. And she decided to give Dionysus a rousing speech that went something like, Listen, Dionysus, the only reason that like Hergus beat you is because Hera and her son Ares, you know, the god of war, they were on his side. Right. So Ares was in there somewhere on like Hergus' side. This is why he lost, according to Thetis. The point is Hera and Ares were on the side of the Thracians. That's why you lost. That's the only reason you lost. Because you're diafuckingnysis, okay? No mortal man can beat you on his own. They had to have divine help. And that divine help is the woman who's been persecuting you since you were born and her son because you can't accept you Dionysus as a god. So what you need to do, sweetie, is you need to buck the fuck up and get back to Thrace and teach this king a motherfucking lesson. Pick yourself up off the seafloor and just fucking... Do the thing that you said you were going to do. And you know what, Jenny? That was exactly what Dionysus needed to hear. Dionysus returns to Thrace, and this time he's not asking to be worshipped. He's not telling everyone he's there for a good time. No. See, Dionysus is like, you either fear me or you love me. I hope that you love me. But this time he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to make the Thracians fear me. So what does he do? He curses Lycurgus with madness because that's what Lycurgus deserves. Dionysus curses Lycurgus into believing his son is ivy growing around the trunk of a tree. So ivy is sacred to Dionysus. Lycurgus decides he needs to cut this ivy right the fuck down because it's sacred to Dionysus. And so he starts cutting away the ivy, cutting away the pieces of his son. Body parts are flying everywhere. Ears, fingers, nose, bits of Lycurgus's son. Until Lycurgus is pretty sure that ivy is all the fuck gone. Of course, once he realizes what he's actually done, Lycurgus is grief-stricken. And there's an alternate version of this myth where Lycurgus also kills his son. I don't see how the son could survive this. But also in this madness, he sleeps with his mom and kills his wife. It's just terrible. Like, Dionysus came to town. You didn't accept him as your god and savior, and he just fucked your life over. Don't piss off Dionysus ever. Don't do it. When the god of wine comes into town, you better just put on your ivy crown and get with the party. So back to the story. All of Thrace had to pay the price for Lycurgus's crime. The entire land dried up. The only way to lift the drought was if Lycurgus was flung to the man-eating horses, which were the mares of Diomedes, also called the mares of Thrace. There's got to be like a whole myth about them, right? There absolutely is. So anyway, they're these man-eating horses. The mares of Diomedes, also called the mares of Thrace. They live on Mount Pangaeus and that's what the Thracians did. They chucked like Kyrgyz over the edge. There's also, I think, another one where they just have him torn apart by wild horses. And after the death of Lycurgus, the Thracians are hardcore fans of Dionysus. They become some of his biggest worshippers. And this is really key. Remember this for the quiz, you guys. Also remember this because this is how we got to this rabbit hole. The Thracians, Spartacus was a Thracian and his lover, the Thracian lady, came from Thrace. This is their religion and their cultural heritage that we're talking about. Yeah, Dionysus is very tied in with Thracians, especially women, the women of Thrace. So interestingly, you see the influence of Dionysus in how the Thracians treated their women. Unmarried women in Thrace were allowed to sleep with whoever they wanted. They were able to take as many lovers as they wanted. Married women in Thrace were much more limited. The Thracians also believed strongly in tattoos. Greeks and Romans saw tattoos as a mark of slavery or punishment. But the Thracians reveled in tattoos. Only the highest born or the best warriors were able to receive a tattoo. And both men and women had tattoos. 
tattoos. To not have one was a sign of low birth and importance. And again, really interesting to remember about Spartacus when we get to his story, because the actual Spartacus would have been covered in tattoos. So there's another thing about tattoos and Thracian women that relates back to Dionysus. Some tattoos on Thracian women were associated with being a mark of punishment for the crime of killing Orpheus. Was that seen as a punishment by Greeks or by Thracian women? I suspect this was seen as a mark of punishment by Greeks and not Thracians. Maybe this is how Thracian women's tattoos were explained to Greeks by other Greeks. Yes, because the Greeks really, really idolized Orpheus. So did the Thracians. So Orpheus was the son of the king of Thrace, not like Hergus. He's the son of a different king of Thrace. Orpheus was a demigod who had an epic journey. He's the famous guy who went to the underworld to get his wife back. And he was a musician, a poet, and a philosopher. And as the cult of Dionysus rose in popularity in Thrace, he spoke out against it. Dionysus was way too wild. He was hedonistic. He was against being a good and moral person. And the Orpheus who came back from the underworld was all about morals. And have you met those ladies who follow him? They have ideas. They're not chained to their hearths. They're allowed outside. They do things. They have thirst sticks. They have thirst sticks and lady brains, and that's dangerous. So dangerous. So the ladies of Thrace decided that Orpheus's head no longer needed to be attached to his body, which is a sentiment I agree with wholeheartedly. So they did what you probably want to do right now, and they ripped him limb from limb in an orgiastic frenzy. It's really one of those difficult things for me with Orpheus because you love him from the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. But later on in life, he's just a tad bit misogynistic. Kind of a giant penis hole. He's got this sort of like immortal curse of never being able to like die, which is why ripping his head off is so important because it still just hangs around. It all goes back to the Gauls and the cult of the severed head and about how heads live after you cut them off and impart wisdom on people. Sure. Do you want to keep reading? It's like stick to the story, Jenny. So like I said, the ladies of Thrace just decided that they were going to dismember Orpheus because he's a giant dill hole. So they ripped him a limb from limb, but his head continued to live. Why? Why do we need the immortal Orpheus head? Nobody tells us. And it hung around criticizing and lecturing people after his body was torn apart because we all need a little more of that. So if these tattoos that we were just talking about were a punishment for killing Orpheus, I suspect the women of Thrace wore them with pride. But they weren't a punishment for killing Orpheus. That's just what the Greeks thought. Thrace was said to be the seat of one of Dionysus's oracles, by the way. Hidden in the mountains of Thrace, Dionysus's prophetic powers rivaled even Apollo's. And you know who got to be his priestesses? I know who. Well, I'm going to tell all the people who aren't you. Thracian women. Thracian women got to be Dionysus's special priestesses. And they were said to go into trances and receive prophecies from Dionysus. So, sorry, Orpheus's head. You can literally just suck it. So, we're going to tell you some fun Dionysus myths. And our next story takes place in the high seas, right, Jen? Arr! Arr. Pirates! So, Jenny... What did Dionysus and Julius Caesar have in common? Uh, Mark Antony had an unhealthy relationship with them both. <laughs> yes, but also they were both kidnapped by pirates. Tell me more. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how Dionysus's kidnapping went down. So Dionysus booked a passage on a ship to Naxos in Greece. Ship he booked himself on just so happened to be a pirate ship. The pirates took one look at Dionysus and they thought, 
this is a handsome guy. Hot. He would fetch a really high price on those slave markets. So let's decide to kidnap him. But one of the pirates and the crew was like, guys, this is the worst idea you've ever had. And you're pirates. We've done some stupid shit, but this is the worst. Like, just look at this guy. Okay. First off, He's clearly too beautiful for this world. He is not mortal. He's got to be a god or at least beloved of a god or maybe a demigod. Like, come on. Kidnapping him is a terrible idea. He might even be that new god. You know, that one that they call Dionysus. Don't make that god mad because he'll literally make you mad. Okay, so you're saying that we shouldn't sell him for like a butt ton of money. No, I'm telling you, that is not a natural guy. Just take his money, take him where he has to go, and do not get caught up in whatever he's doing. Get the fuck out of here. We're going to sell him and make so much money. So, yeah, that was their decision. The pirates tied Dionysus up to the mast. But the thing is, the ropes kept slipping off. It was almost like he wasn't the same shape every time. And that one sensible pirate guy was like, see, this is so not a good idea. Why won't the rope stay? Why? But the other pirates told this overly cautious pirate to just man that wheel and just jog on. And of course, Dionysus gave this guy a wink and was like, it's okay, bud. You know what's up. Do you even get to be a pirate if you're overly cautious? They're like, we're going to revoke your pirate card if you don't stop being overly cautious. So eventually, they somehow managed to secure Dionysus. And then they hear some really strange sounds in the hold of the ship, Jen. Big cats. They did not put some big cats in the hold of the ship, but they were hearing big cat sounds all of a sudden. They were. Lots of Halloween style. <laughs> really fierce. Yeah. And by big cats, we mean panthers and leopards. And do you know what else they were hearing? They were hearing bull noises, too. They were all making a fearsome cacophony down in the hold. And all of a sudden, ivy and grapevines started wrapping around the oars and slithering up across the deck. And some snakes were slithering up between the gaps and the planks on the deck. And the pirates were terrified. They decided they'd rather chance it in the sea than deal with what was going on in the ship. So they jumped off the ship. They decided this is not going to work for us. This is some next level nonsense going on here. Right. There are some snakes. There are some bulls. There are some big cats. There's some ivy. Fuck it! Into the sea with all of us. And Dionysus gave that one pirate who was anti-selling him into slavery a cheeky wink because Jen wrote this and she made me say cheeky. So I said it. I did. So Dionysus then turned the fleeing pirates into dolphins so they could swim better. You know, he's a nice guy. And he let the one decent pirate live because he's generous, provided that one decent pirate took Dionysus to his next destination. Because if you want your myth to spread, someone has to live to tell the tale, right? Yeah. So now it's our final and most bloody tale of Dionysus's journeys. This is the story of the Bacchae, immortalized in the Dionysia, or the annual play competition that was dedicated to Dionysus every year in Athens. This is a tragedy that cements Dionysus's legacy. And in part two, we're going to talk about the epic Dionysia and what this festival meant, how it worked, and why this format of worshiping Dionysus solidified him as a god of revolutionaries. But for now, let's just get back to the story. We'll get to that. It's not in this episode. It's coming. Dionysus had returned to Thebes, to the land of his birth. By right, he should be a prince here. 
but he wasn't. He was an outcast. This was the home of Dionysus's dead mother, whose tomb, by the way, was still smoking because when a god killed you by showing you his godly divine essence, apparently your tomb just never stops being on fire. Dionysus's mom is still on fire. Well, she's dead, but her tomb is still smoldering. Still on fire. Yeah. Dionysus heard that his cousin Pentheus, the king of Thebes, had been talking shit about his mother and about Dionysus. And Dionysus, at this point in time, had enough battles under his belt, and the word of his divinity and his general awesomeness had spread throughout the world. Dionysus just had a few more jobs to complete before he could ascend into the heavens. And now, Dionysus arrived in Thebes with his maenads and satyrs and his Amazons and his war elephants and his panthers and that one pirate who was sensible. That one sensible pirate and the call of his entourage of this wild collection of people and animals enticed the women of Thebes. They left their looms. They unbound their hair. They told their husbands to watch the kids and they took to the woods and the wilds and they started to dance and drink and join the maenads and Dionysus's company. These women had never been this free before and they didn't want to return to their city. They had heard the call of Dionysus and they were ready to follow him anywhere. So Cadmus, the retired king of Thebes, who is both Dionysus's grandfather and Pentheus's sis, And Pentheus's grandfather. Pentheus, name associated with Dionysus. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> We've already told you it's not, but sure. <laughs> so Cadmus, the retired king and everybody's grandfather, gets decked out in his best Bacchanalian outfit. He's got his crown of ivy on. He's breaking out the fox skin. He's pulling out his dick stick. He's chilling with his buddy, the blind prophet Teresius, who also has a dick stick in the closet. He's just hauling that sucker out and coating it in honey. He's been ready for this day. Oh, yeah. So both of these guys, you know, they're older. They're senior citizens. They've both accepted Dionysus into their hearts. Balls deep. And strangely, they <laughs> they both feel something they haven't felt in years. They feel young and light. And it's as if some of the weight of the long years has been lifted. They feel a certain je ne sais quoi, which in French means I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> killing me. They urge Pentheus to just put on his ivy crown and stop being such a dill hole. God, just put on your fox skin like everybody else and pick up a dick stick. Stop indulging in this very toxic patriarchy and for a couple of hours or days, be one with Dionysus. So Pentheus is a stubborn ass d-hole. He's the king in Thebes, and no stranger in his band of misfits is going to tell him what to do. Honor was at stake! Honor was at stake! Thank you, Cullen. Just pops up in season five. He just pops up to tell us when honor is at stake. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, Pentheus' plan was to have those women following Dionysus, routed up and punished. He wanted to spank them real bad, starting with those manads who some of his men have already captured. Cadmus tells his grandson, just fucking cool it, all right? This is a terrible idea, but it's Greek tragedy, so obviously Pentheus will not be moved. Pentheus is a stand-in here for Greek society and the patriarchy. He is not going to share his power with this non-gender binary stranger who rocks into town claiming to be a god. So Pentheus's men round up a few manads and a priest of Dionysus, and they lock up the manads and the priest is brought before the king. Pentheus does a whole lot of posturing and preening and flexing of his muscles and he tells the stranger, listen, this new god of yours 
believers, he's not a real god. His mom had an affair with this guy that she claimed was Zeus, but everyone knows that it wasn't actually Zeus. She was just too ashamed to tell people that she was knocked up out of wedlock. Pentheus is such a dill hole here. He really is. He's so mean. He's such a massive vat of ball sweat. I kind of can't even with him. (laughs) Well, quite. Look, his mom's tomb is still on fire. How did they explain that? It's still on fire. It's been on fire for like a few decades now. Yeah. So the priest reminded Pentheus that, you know, that guy Dionysus is a god and his mom totally banged the king of the gods. And you might want to have a little respect when you talk about him and his mom, whose tomb is still on fire. Pentheus ordered his guards to drag the priest of Dionysus back to jail. And after that, Pentheus ordered them to go out and capture the rest of the maenads who were still running around uprooting the patriarchy and just being a general nuisance to these men. But not too long after, Pentheus' guards came back into his throne room. They reported back. So you remember those maenads that we'd already captured? They escaped. And here's the strangest thing. The walls in the palace where we were holding them, they just fell down and then caught on fire. It's weird that Pentheus didn't notice that. Well, he was having a soliloquy, Jenny, you know. So (laughs) that priest of Dionysus, here's the thing. We tried to tie him up, but he just kept changing shape, which is really weird, right? So we didn't tie him up. We just locked him in a cell and then, you know, sort of said a prayer because we were terrified. And Pentheus is just looking at them like, what the actual... So Pentheus is obsessed with what the women were doing out in the wild. He was really obsessed with these women. He really, really, really wanted to know about these secret bacchanalian rites, rites only women were able to perform. He fretted about it and paced about it and maybe masturbated about it and just could not stop thinking about it. No. Of course he masturbated about it. What else is he going to do alone in his throne room? Stop it. And then the priest of Dionysus showed up, you know, the one who was shape-shifting and who was supposed to be locked up in a cell, but now he's in the throne room somehow. Pentheus is so beside himself at this point that he doesn't even question this. This priest goes, listen, I know a way you can sneak into the mountains and see what those naughty, naughty women are up to. And I don't know why Pentheus trusts this guy, but he does. I mean, I know why Pentheus trusts this guy. Why? Well, because he's kind of sexy and he's telling Pentheus what he wants to hear. Obviously. Yeah. And also because Pentheus is like very aroused and intrigued by what's going on that he's not able to be a part of. He wants to control and punish, but he also wants to be part of it in a way. He's really intrigued by this sort of pulling down of the gender binary and also terrified by it. And we eroticize our fears as humans. So I feel like this priest is whispering in Pentheus's ear all the forbidden things that he wants to hear secretly but would never admit to. Anyway, so the priest then tells Pentheus that, listen, if you want to sneak up into these Bacchanalian rites and see what's going on, you're going to have to go in disguise. And Pentheus agrees. So the priest dresses Pentheus up as a woman. And here's the thing. Pentheus is kind of into it. No, no, no. He's really into it. He likes how he looks. Yeah, and when I was looking at some of the research, they talk about how Pentheus is very confused by his feelings about being dressed this way. I think the thing about Pentheus and liking the way he looks that's so important that we're looking at here is that it is such a threat to this masculine identity that he's built up and to this patriarchal way that their society is structured. And Pentheus is really grappling with that because the Greeks are much freer with their sexuality and with what was accepted and what was not accepted. If 
you're a woman, no. No, if you're a man, yes. But this idea of how Pentheus is feeling is really scary for him. He's a young king who doesn't have an heir, hasn't really proved himself, and maybe is realizing some things about himself that he's deeply uncomfortable with and doesn't really know how to react to. Yeah. So anyway, Pentheus is really, really into the way he looks when he's dressed as a woman. But here's the thing. The priest of Dionysus is actually Dionysus. Shocker. And he's just dressed Pentheus up, not just as a woman, but as a sacrifice. So Dionysus leads Pentheus into the mountains to see what the women have been getting up to. But Pentheus, like we said, is not there as a spectator. He's there as an offering. Once the Bacchae, or Bacchanalian revelers, see him, all hell breaks loose. Pentheus' mother and his aunt Eno had run off to join the Bacchae. And right now, they're both in the midst of a full-on orgiastic frenzy. And here's what happened next. And this is a quote from Euripides' The Bacchae. But she, Pentheus' mom, with foaming mouth and wildly rolling eyes, bereft of reason as she was, heeded Pentheus not, for the god possessed her. And she caught his left hand in her grip, and planting her foot upon her victim's trunk, she tore the shoulder from its socket, not of her own strength, but the god made it an easy task to her hands. And Eno, Pentheus's aunt, set to work upon the other side, rending the flesh with all the eager host of Bacchanals. And one united cry arose, the victim's groans while yet he breathed, and their triumphant shouts. One would make an arm her prey, another a foot with the sandal on it, and his ribs were stripped of flesh by their rending nails, and each one of the blood-dabbled hands was tossing Pentheus's limbs about. Scattered lies his corpse, part beneath the rugged rock, and part amid the deep, dark woods, no easy task to find. But his poor head hath his mother made her own, and fixing it upon the point of a thyrsus, as it had been a mountain lion's, she bears it through the myths of the Scytheron, having left her sisters with the maenads at their rights. And she she is entering these walls, exulting in her hunting, fraught with woe, calling on the Bacchic god, her fellow hunter, who had helped her triumph in a chase where her only prize was tears. And this is where we got our cold open from this week. That is the horrible scene we described in our prologue. And this is where we bring this episode back to Crassus. Because why not? <laughs> because nobody asked for Crassus, but we're going to serve up some more Crassus. He really, actually, historically, went to war with the Parthians, got defeated. The Parthians cut off his head and they used it as a prop in a production of the Bacchae, which is the play that we just read you a scene from. And that scene, I think, is where his head appears, right? It's there. So what happens is after that, Pentheus's mother walks in and she's got this head on the thyrsus that she's like cradling and that is Crassus's head. Right. So Crassus's head is um, the severed head of Pentheus in this play. And Crassus kind of deserved it because he went and beat up on the Parthians. So there's a certain poetic justice here. The richest man in Rome, the aging general who sought to force the Parthians to bend to his will, finds his end, much like Pentheus, as an outsider trying to deny another culture, a greater foe and losing. And that's the end of Pentheus. You do not deny the god Dionysus. Nope. You put on your celebratory garb and you let him into your heart. And if you don't, you will meet with a terrible end. That is also the message that the gods sent throughout the ancient world. Fear me, 
Worship me. Do not deny me. And it would be the rallying cry for those who followed him. Because Dionysus' stories spread like wine. They reached the hearts and minds of everyone in the ancient world. They were the tales of a misfit god. A god who suffered. Who was denied by his people. Who was denied his birthright. And still he endured. He flourished. He was as wild and unchecked as the ivy and as ripe and fragile as the grapevine. He was both a foreigner to Greece and a native son. He would become the patron god of those who opposed Rome. And one man in particular would claim his patronage, Spartacus. One man. One man, Spartacus. Eventually, Dionysus <laughs> was at last accepted by the Olympian gods and goddesses. After a lot of travels, he earned his seat. After he completed his wanderings, converted the mortals of Earth to his religion, and proved that he was a god in his own right. So Dionysus got what he wanted eventually. So we'll be back in two weeks with a look at what really happened after Dionysus stopped his traveling, got everyone to accept his divinity, and became a god who both died every season and was immortal, who offered eternal life, salvation, and oblivion. I mean, I wonder who that's like. Couldn't possibly think of anyone. It starts with a J and it ends with an Isis. <laughs> so we'll be back in two weeks. We're going to talk about the rites of Dionysus or what we know about them, how people worshipped him, and what those manads actually got up to in those woods. Was it an orgiastic frenzy? Did they really rip people limb from limb? I fucking hope so. So before we go, we've got some new patrons we want to shout out, right, Jen? Mm-hmm. Ryan O'Connor. Amber Davis, Liliana Paradiso, and Felicity Malpas. Your support is what keeps this podcast going. We couldn't do it without you. Absolutely. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram or Facebook. And you can get more episodes from us in the meantime if you sign up for our Patreon. We've currently got about six or seven episodes for Patreon subscribers, which you can access for just $2 a month. And we put a new one up every month. We're at almost $250 a month on the Patreon as of this recording. And once we get to $500 a month, we've committed to producing two minisodes a month. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. So if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, check out our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com where you can find links to our Ko-Fi account and you can buy us a coffee. Or if you want to support us in a way that doesn't involve money, leave us a nice review. We love and appreciate every one of those. Thank you so much for listening and for all of your support. We will see you in two weeks. Thank you so much. 